Welcome to Searching for the Question Live. My name is David Orban. I'm very glad that you are here following the show. Uh, we are live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, feel free to send your questions and comments as uh, uh, together with my guest, uh, we get into hopefully interesting uh, areas and threads of uh, today's uh, theme. But uh, before we start, I would like to invite you to, of course, uh, subscribe to uh, the show on YouTube so that you can get uh, alerted uh, about uh, forthcoming uh, episodes and uh, to join our Discord community on uh, davidorban.com slash discord where you can uh, uh, text chat but also voice chat and video chat uh, both with me as well as with other members of the community uh, once again uh, learning about uh, uh, what are the themes that we cover and uh, also uh, just uh, suggesting uh, new guests or uh, what we should be talking about uh, in future episodes of uh, Searching for the Question. And, uh, of course, uh, if you like the content that, uh, together with my team, I uh, create, I invite you to uh, become a supporter on uh, patreon.com slash David Orban. So today we are going to talk about uh, fintech and uh, the future of banking. I'm uh, pretty passionate about uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Uh, but of course, uh, we have a huge existing uh, financial infrastructure uh, that... Uh, we cannot afford to lose uh, before we fully embrace uh, whatever uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain uh, is going to bring uh, in the next uh, years and decades. And what we need instead is to modernize it, to make, it, make sure that uh, the features uh, and the services uh, that uh, the financial system provides correspond to what we need. And uh, we are going to talk about this as well as uh, other complementary topics uh, with my guest of today, Brett King. Uh, Brett is an Australian futurist, author, and uh, a, a, the co-founder and, and uh, chairman of uh, Moven uh, that is uh, uh, based in New York. And it's a, a, a company offering uh, software platforms especially oriented towards uh, uh, smartphones and mobile interfaces to banks. Uh, and he's uh, uh, an influencer in financial services, wrote uh, a gazillion books uh, that we are also going to, to mention for sure. Um, I have uh, one of uh, his uh, latest uh, uh, with me right here, Augmented. And uh, uh, well, uh, let's uh, welcome uh, Brett uh, with us today. Good to be back, David. Hey, I can hear the uh, protest. Uh, yeah, the protest revolt, <laughs> and then getting into uh, a prising and revolution. Are those the next uh, four phases? Yeah, maybe. I've got uh, my uh, boring company, not a flamethrower, ready just in case. Okay, okay, that's good. Keep it close. Keep it close. So, how, how are things in New York? Uh, uh, whatever the current crisis, uh, uh, pandemic, uh, check. Um, um, civil uh, disruptions, check. Uh, locusts are next. Uh, yeah. I don't know. 
And the, um, yeah, the East River hasn't turned into blood yet, but I'm waiting for that one next. Um, it, look, it's uh, you know we're we're safe, we're well fed. Um, you know, things could could be worse, but um, obviously um, there's a great amount of uncertainty right now. We have a vacuum of, of leadership uh, nationally in respect to trying to get some, um, trying to, to to calm things down, and so um, you know uh, it, the the potential for escalation, unfortunately, is uh, is pretty strong. Um, you know, there's a whole range of other impacts more broadly, you know, both globally and nationally here in the U.S. as a result of the economic effects of of all of this that will will take a lot longer to repair than the uh, um, the protests and the riots and, and, and even the coronavirus response, but I'm sure we'll get into that. So uh, tell us a little bit about you. Um, how did you end up uh, from Australia in, in New York or wherever uh, your various bases are? Because I know you have uh, one of uh, the, the, the bases in Thailand and, yeah. and you would like uh, to be I'd able love to be there right now for sure. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it is probably safer and... Yes. and and more yeah, stable than in the US. Um, yeah, so I've been offshore for 20 years, even though I'm Aussie. Um, I spent uh, almost seven years in Hong Kong, uh, four and a half years in Dubai, and I've been in, in uh, um, you know, New York for uh, about a decade, just over a decade, actually. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I do feel uh, much like yourself, David, that I'm a citizen of the world, um, you know, and uh, it's, yeah, I'm in the Lower East Side, um all right so uh, yeah um yeah i'm yeah I'm, I'm a little bit south of where you you're looking right now but uh oh, we, we we don't need to zoom in on your home <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah 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 so around that area um i i i left australia in 99 um and i've been sort of traveling the world ever since but i started as a technologist um, so I was a bite ripper in the early days, a coder, um, and then sort of migrated into sort of project management for large scale um, technology projects, sort of became a architect and, and sort of project manager in the space, um, had my own companies, you know, most of my career I've spent as an entrepreneur, I, I had a software business for the first, uh, um, you know, for many years, uh, you know, initially, um, and then, uh, you know, ended up, uh, you know, project managing some very large scale projects for, for Deloitte, um, you know, you know, uh, sort of SAP, ERP type stuff, as well as, um, you know, web. But it, really in the 2000s, I started to focus on, on the digital revolution, you know, so um, internet-based stuff. You know, I owned an ISP back in 95, you know, but by 2000s, I was really sort of an e-business guy. Uh, in Hong Kong at the time, um, you know, managed some very large-scale, um, you know, online implementations for financial service organizations, um, you know, the likes of HSBC, uh, Manulife, the Canadian, uh, you know, life insurer, Amex, Citibank, you know, others, Standard Chartered. I did their global.com strategy for Standard Chartered in uh, 2007. So I was right at that nexus of, you know, the financial services industry getting online. Um, and that eventually, uh, after the, you know, financial crisis, led me to writing my first book, Bank 2.0. 
Um, I wrote a series of banking books, as, as you alluded to, um, you know, Bank 2.0, Bank 3.0, Bank 4.0 as my, my latest in that. I did Branch Today, Gone Tomorrow, Breaking Banks. And uh, with uh, Alex Lightman, um, uh, JP Rangaswamy and uh, Andy Lark, I, I, I produced Augmented, um, which was the best-selling book that I've done, um, you know, broader, broader market, obviously. And it's sort of my attempt at sort of sh short-term sci-fi. I know you're a sci-fi fan too, Dave. So, um, you know, um, looking at uh, the next 20 to 30 years in terms of how technology changes society, it's all accelerated a little bit as a result of uh, coronavirus, of course. And, um, you know, the seventh book I'm working on is called The Rise of Techno-Socialism, which is sort of a sequel to Augmented. And um, uh, it talks about more of the social structure and social order that, that's changing as a result of coronavirus, um, you know, uh, dramatic inequality, um, the impact of artificial intelligence on employment, and then, you know, eventually how climate change is going to change, change that. So we've got some great contributions, um, you know, forward by uh, by. Arnie. Um, we have Jack Ma who's contributed to the book. So it's a really, it's, uh, it's coming together really nicely. But, uh, and my co-author on that is an economist, um, Richard Petty, Dr. Richard Petty, not the racing car driver, but Dr. Richard Petty out of Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, we've known each other for 20 years. So it's great to be collaborating with him on and, that as and, well. And you told me that that reality is catching up uh, very fast with uh, the uh, short-term sci-fi. Uh, yeah. So as a consequence, it is likely not to come out in July, but instead be pushed back a little bit, right? Yes, it's probably going to be uh, October, we think. Um, the reality for that is if, if you think about, um, you know, one of, we, we talked about economic structures that are going to need to support the changing social conditions you know, as a result of AI and large, large technology unemployment and climate change uh, disrupting coastal cities and things like that. And we talked about the need for universal basic income to soften the blow of, of those changes. Now, you know, we put a whole business case together um, showing why UBI, um, you know, could work and would be would be required. And, um, and then suddenly we have coronavirus and Spain announces UBI and the US does and UK does stimulus payments and things like that. So um, obviously the arguments that, that we had, uh, you know, were, were um, you know, had to take into account that you know, now we have a, a real case of where um, this sort of um, social um, uh, safety net um, would be required economically. But there's other elements as well. You know, um, it, it, a part of the protests we're seeing in New York these days, while we can relate it back to the uh, the death of, of George Floyd, um, you know, part of part of the issues we're facing in the United States is, um, you know, the, the most severe um, economic inequality in the U.S.'s, uh, you know, history. And so that inequality can't be uh, um, excused away. A lot of the problems the U.S. has today um, are, you know, at their grassroots economic, um, you know, economic uh, inequality. And so, um, you, you know, you have to fix those problems to solve these ty types of issues we're seeing in the U.S. on a longer-term basis. And and um, I am absolutely interested and fascinated by um, how technology impacts society and as a consequence allows society to uh, evolve and fulfill ambitious uh, uh, moral aims that uh, we feel and share but are frustrated in not seeing being realized because potentially of a lack of technological development. So we will go back to that. But uh, 
Uh, let's uh, start from uh, from uh, fintech uh, and and uh, and banking, um, also because those are very important uh, technologies by by themselves. Uh, uh, Massimo Prezioso um, commands us for for the topic. Uh, uh, Alex uh, Lightman says hello and says, "Hey, uh, Alex." Uh, happy to see friends <laughs> doing videos together, um, and uh, and uh, uh, Emiliano uh, goes uh, straight uh, and asks uh, about Bankera. Now I happen not to know Bankera. I'm pretty sure, Brett, you do know Bankera, but I, of course, uh, looked it up uh, while uh, we were we were here, and uh, and it looks like that Bankera is. A, a, a kind of a neobank, uh, you know, just like we have uh, N26, yeah. uh, we have Revolut, we have uh, uh, many, many others. Yeah, and in fact, so it, move and if I understand, would we be started a, as a, a provider uh, uh, of to to of a software layer to one of these, right? We were the first mobile challenger bank in the world. We launched in uh, 2011. Actually, the domain for Moven Bank, as it was known back then, was registered in August uh, 2010. And so we were the first mobile challenger bank in the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, we were the first uh, mobile app where you could open a bank account in the app online. You know, we were the first to do contactless payments. We were the first to do real-time receipts when you uh, transacted at a store. We were the first to create, um, you know, a, a different relationship with your money in the homepage of the app where it showed you a spending meter um, to show and categorized your spending instantly to show, you know, what was a good spending event versus a bad spending event and, and coach you to save more money using gamification. All of that stuff we sort of pioneered back in 2011. Today, there's over 100 challenger banks globally. Some of the uh, largest, uh, um, you know, or fastest growing banks in the world are challenger banks today. Um, we've heard of the Monzos, the N26s and the Revoluts, obviously. But, um, you know, at uh, yesterday, a uh, new bank in uh, Latin America, based out of Brazil, um, announced they had, uh, for their seventh anniversary, had um, uh, acquired 25 million customers or reached the uh, the um, that uh, milestone of 25 million customers, which makes them, you know, right up there with uh, the likes of, uh, you know, um, Revolut in terms of size. But the largest uh, challenger bank in the world is actually based in China, not a surprise, it's WeBank, and they have about 200 million um, customers today, um, WeBank in China. Um, and uh, they're, they're a massive uh, player in the, the emerging space there. But the largest privately owned organization in the world, you know, is um, actually, you know, again, based in China around um, money, and that is Ant Financial, um, largest privately owned entity in the world, worth, uh, you know, in excess of $250 billion today, which makes them larger than Citibank, Deutsche Bank, you know, many of the, the big financial uh, names that we have. So fintech is no longer this fringe thing that's infused in society, you know, at every level. Um, you know, fintech dominates payments today. Um, you know, we, not only do we have transfer wise and of course we have uh, bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and things like that but last year the two major mobile payments platforms in china 
and Financial Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay, between them did $41 trillion in mobile payments. Now, why that's significant is if you take all of the plastic cards in the world, you know, um, um, MasterCard, Visa, Amex, you know, uh, Discover, et cetera, and you combine all of them, they did about $22.5 trillion in, uh, in payments last year. So, you know, mobile payments just out of China alone were almost double all of the remaining uh, plastic card payments in the world. So what that tells us is that the future of the value store, the way we will transact on a day-to-day -day basis is rapidly shifting towards the cloud, rapidly shifting towards, you know, the phone and in the future, smart glasses and voice. Um, and that will be your dominant way of paying day-to-day. -day. There's a wallet that you have in the cloud, not necessarily owned by a bank. It doesn't have to be anymore, you know? And so this is a, a, a radical departure from banking of the last 700 years since Monte de Pasca de Sienne um, started in 1472, the oldest bank in the world, right? Uh, uh, I, I love this uh, recent chart of how many clicks uh, do you need to open an account, right? Yeah. From uh, older banks uh, that are five, six times as uh, hard uh, as, as the, the more uh, innovative ones. Um, Emiliano from uh, YouTube is asking if uh, we will have an Apple bank because the Apple card today is... Uh, um not uh, not offered by apple themselves uh, but it is uh, in partnership with uh, chase if i'm not mistaken um so do you expect that uh, it's that actually it's actually with goldman sachs with marcus oh, okay. but you're correct yeah yeah um uh, look i think um if you think about this systemically this is the way to look at it Prior to 1990, when the internet emerged um, and we started to have the, the first online banking uh, structures, prior to, well, 95 that was, prior to that, the only way you could get access to banking was going to a bank branch, um, you know, and, and getting access that way, signing a piece of paper. The only way you could access money was through an ATM or a bank branch. The only way you could uh, um, have a service relationship with the bank was either the branch or the call center. So banks um, uh, monopolize the channels with which you could get access to banking. But if you look at it today, people use mobile banking 350 times more than they visit branches on an annual basis, right? And so there's no, you know, it's not even close in terms of the fact that technology channels dominate day-to-day -day access to banking and surfacing of utility. Now, um, the big shift that's taking place as we, you know, get more technology capability here, first of all through, uh, you know, smartphones and then next gen through smart glasses and, and, and smart speakers, you know, voice-based AI, is uh, that utility that the bank has is, is being surfaced in much more frictionless, much more efficient manner. So the, the graph you showed in terms of clicks to open a bank account is just one part of where we're taking out friction from the banking system by looking at UX and experiences. 
ultimately that also destroys the real value banks have had in the past with monopolizing um, access because they become parts of the ecosystem at the back end sort of the the dumb pipes as we often call it um, and but the experience has become led by the the intent or behavior or other factors that are, um, are better expressed in a real-time environment so you don't need a credit card to get access to credit anymore you walk in a grocery store if you don't have enough cash to buy your groceries, you'll immediately be informed on your phone or your smart glasses of a credit offer saying, hey, your salary hasn't hit the account yet, but I can help you buy your groceries today. You know, uh, uh, so that experience shift leads us away from uh, traditional bank players to more of the technology players acting as gatekeepers. I don't think Apple wants to be a bank. I don't think Facebook or Google wants to be a bank, um, but they may end up defining who are the biggest banks in the world by their, well, their gatekeeping. One of the reasons they don't want to be a bank is because of uh, the regulatory straight jacket that they would necessarily have to wear. Uh, and, and, and that is because the degree of disruption that technology could have had already on the financial sector was drastically slowed down by the regulatory capture that today uh, the incumbents uh, leverage in order to keep competitors at bay. And in the meantime, we have built a world of uh, uh, schizophrenic and paranoid uh, obsessions uh, where uh, the, the KYCs and the UBOs and all the bureaucratic uh, uh, hoops that one has to, to jump through uh, build an image of pretend uh, compliance mm -hmm. while huge um, uh, non-compliant uh, activities are uh, ongoing Absolutely. as demonstrated even just by the ones that cannot even be hidden and as a consequence the banks get fined billions and billions and billions of dollars and of course, the largest of, of these uh, emperor naked issues, which is the inability of the regulators to prevent systemic risks. Correct. In and fact, uh, you know, I mean, I've I got two illustrations of that. First of all, AML, anti-money laundering, were successful at eliminating about 2% of money laundering globally with the current um, legislation and regulations we have around the world. We're appalling at it. This, despite spending over $400 um, you know, uh, billion dollars annually on regulation associated with money laundering, we stopped 2% of it. I mean, that's, the, you know, in any business case, if you, you, you put that sort of investment into something and, and we're only 2% successful, you, you'd stop it. Um, the other thing, you, you talked about KYC. Um, I, I joke that it stands for kill your customers with paperwork in the banking sector. But coming back to the the uh, the fines and stuff like that, you do you remember, you, you know Charlie Shrem, right? You remember Charlie from oh, yeah, Bit yeah, Instant, yeah. right? So I had Charlie Shrem come in and do my radio show the day before he went into jail 
for money laundering charges. Now, those money laundering charges were levied against him for bid instant, um, you know, or changing money for uh, Silk Road and things like that. You know, Charlie made some mistakes in that respect, but at, at the end of the day, um, you know, he was charged. Um, laws changed to uh, change the way uh, cryptocurrency uh, was categorized in the US system, and he was charged retrospectively for a crime um, that didn't exist when uh, he started BitInstant. So there's a lot of funny, funny stuff going on. But the day I had him in the radio show, the day before he went into prison, HSBC paid a $1.9 billion fine for money, money laundering in relation to their Mexico banking activities. So you've got these two worlds, you know, like the guys starting to innovate and this sort of stuff. Charlie Shrem could never go to the regulator and, and pay a fine and get out of uh, criminal time because they, you know, the, the uh, system sort of want to make an example of him. But that there's, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that so many banks are systemically involved in money laundering is uh, not even a debatable fact. Um, and and so if if that is the case, then evidently these regulations don't serve uh, the 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 purpose that uh, they are purported to serve, mm -hmm. and and uh, all the benefit that the modern financial and banking tools could provide to 7 billion people are being withheld in order to um, just uh, provide those benefits to uh, a much smaller uh, number of, of people. Another example of, of this is um, uh, the... Um, the, the the way that uh, regulations around uh, investment are are being implemented uh, 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 section three of the jobs act uh, under the obama administration was supposed to um, uh, liberalize um, equity crowdfunding in the united states and the sec took it and turned it into a 600 page regulation that obviously had the opposite effect of killing equity crowdfunding in the US. Similarly, um, the uh, New York State uh, uh, Financial Authority worked two years uh, to implement the BIT license mm -hmm. that was supposed to regulate um, uh, startups uh, in, the, in the crypto space as it applies to, to, to financial activities. And the consequence of that horrible uh, uh, regulation was that many, many um, uh, startups uh, in, the, in the Bitcoin space uh, just left the state of New York to the point that if you connected to their service in your browser while sitting in Manhattan, you would get the, the, the alert Sorry, your geographical location makes it so that we don't want to even show you our homepage. <laughs> and and and, uh, and the crazy. US has had the 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 privilege of being uh, in the in the avant-garde uh, of financial innovation in the 20th uh, century and it really feels that it is selling the future in order to protect the past. Absolutely. It is assuring could not agree with you more. We are God in the 21st century. So how are we 
going to achieve what we want in terms of financial inclusion and creating tremendous amount of wealth and opportunity for everybody uh, if this is the case. Look, when it comes generally to reform of banking around the technologies or innovation of fintech, I would say China is today seven to 10 years ahead of the United States. The regulatory environment in the United States is debilitating for for fintechs. Obviously, you know, fintechs like ourselves and others are, are trying to work around that because the U.S. also, you know, in the past historically has been a very healthy environment for investment in the fintech space. But 25% of U.S. households are unbanked or underbanked, and that exists um, primarily because of regulation around identity. So you have, um, you know, a large section of these households in the United States, they don't have driver's licenses, they don't have passports that allow them to qualify for opening a bank account. So they have to use alternative financial service providers. They go to check cashes, they use prepay cards, all of these things that don't require or don't meet the identity requirements um, for that. So when you look at financial exclusion globally, one of the biggest problems is banks require you to go in, present an identity card and sign a piece of paper to get access to a basic value store. And that is um, a functional, um, you know, it's a dysfunctional piece of the system. Um, if you want financial inclusion, you have to change the way we think about identity and you have to change the way about how someone qualifies uh, to, to open a bank account, which is why the likes of uh, M-Pesa in uh, Kenya, MTN Money in Nigeria, you know, um, Gcash in the Philippines, uh, and all of these types of uh, technologies that have exploded on the world scene, not to mention the Chinese system, um, has started to give us a really different view of the way we should think about identity, that, um, you know, identity, can be tied to your face, for example, and that's much more robust than your mother's maiden name, your social security number, your date of birth and your address, which in today's day and age, those data points can pretty easily be stolen. So, um, you know, when we solve identity, ironically, we're also going to solve the problem of financial inclusion. But it does, uh, you know, banks, as you, as you rightly point out, have been trying to game that situation. So they become the uh, the sole proprietors of, of value stores and credit access and things like that. And you have to jump through their hoops. That is what- There are two and probably more US industries that are uh, keeping the world in this straight jacket. Uh, and especially the fact that through trade agreements and, and other means, the U.S. is able to impose its own way of going about uh, these industries to the rest of the world is is uh, is dangerous. Uh, the other industry is the content industry, the Hollywood uh, uh, industry that imposes copyright regimes that are excessively uh, restrictive uh, as well. And and a famous example is the 3 a.m. SWAT attack against uh, um, Kim.com's home in and private yeah. residence in New Zealand, uh, where uh, the prime minister had to apologize for infringing on his right as a as a as a citizen on his constitutional rights uh, because 
the 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 entire New Zealand judiciary has been suborned by uh, the, the 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 U.S. Hollywood industry, uh, and 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 the same kind of leverage is happening in other places as well, including finance, um, and and uh, so how do you see uh, another example? Sorry. Uh, the the FATCA legislation. Oh, don't get me started on that. Which which just to 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 remind our our listeners, um, uh, there has been um, a, a, a vast uh, conspiracy in um, aiding and abetting U.S. citizens um, eluding taxes by opening anonymous. Uh, accounts in Switzerland and elsewhere. And this scheme has been going on for decades, evidently with everybody knowing about it. And then, um, for whatever reason, one guy has been able to uh, go about denouncing this in a manner that couldn't be swept under the carpet. And to demonstrate that he was disliked quite significantly is that even though he was under the um, protection of the whistleblower um, uh, regulations, he did still go to jail for blowing up this, this conspiracy. And I met the guy and he did receive the 100 million uh, payout that was his share of the... Uh, of the, um, I don't know how many billions of fines that the bank at the end received. So, so he did survive, strike one, good. He, he, he did uh, go to jail, which means that, that he cannot be punished again because no double jeopardy. And, and he, he ended up with 100 million. And he ended up $114 million payment. Not I, a bad payday. I saw the, the photo of the check. Uh, uh, he, he also wrote a book, uh, uh, the, the Devil's Banker, or something. Yes. I, I will, yeah, I will quite well. Yeah. yeah. So, so that legislation, sorry, that that act uh, provoked the legislation that now requires all the banks in all over the world to identify if somebody is a U.S. citizen, because the United States applies universal taxation. It doesn't matter where you live you have to pay the king's ransom basically you have you you are subject to the united states regardless of where you, you you live unless you renounce your citizenship and interestingly that is becoming more and more bureaucratically complicated and can, and they can deny you entry to the country uh, if, if yeah. you if if you renounce your citizenship, if they believe that you still, um, you know, if you renounce your citizenship but are still, you know, conducting business in the United States, uh, they can say that that's done as a, a tax dodge, and the IRS can restrict yeah. you from entering the country. This so is what, incidentally why I've never become a U.S. citizen, even though I've lived here ten years. What, I don't what, have a green card either, but for that same reason. But but paradoxically, what happened at the end of all of this, and, and maybe I was too long in describing it is that the uh, best fiscal paradise today is a Delaware C-Corp. <laughs> 
paradoxically, rather than, rather than a, a Swiss anonymous account establishing a corporate presence in the United States, in the state of Delaware, provides you with a higher degree of anonymity than, than anywhere else in the world. And, and at the same time, the rest of the world lives under this schizophrenic, paranoid uh, regime of, of identifying everybody while not achieving much against uh, uh, money laundering or, or uh, uh, combating uh, uh, drug lords or, or whatever else. This so speaks what to do we, this, what do we do because we cannot yeah. we, we cannot wage war against the U.S. They have all the bombs, uh, uh, and we are we are peaceful people. How can we tell the U.S. to please let the world evolve? Well, I, I, ultimately, the way this will play out, and, and you you saw the friction starting with cryptocurrencies, and and uh, you know the the efforts by the United States to um, uh, you know to, to, to handcuff um, these mechanisms. Now, uh, obviously, we could get into the whole argument of centralized versus decentralized and have that, but let's let's take a more simple view. Um, if you were designing a banking system today, if you were designing a currency today, you know, you you know, how would you build it from from scratch? First, first principles, design engineering. Well, you'd make it frictionless cross border. You'd make it real time, and you'd make embed, you know, you'd make identity embedded with a transaction if you wanted to stop uh, money laundering um, and and theft of uh, theft of that. You'd have a uh, a very explicit uh, audit trail of where a single uh, digital uh, denominated uh, um, you know currency unit had been throughout its life history. You'd have rich data on that, and and for the purpose of what the US says they're doing, factor for an AML. Uh, you know, under the FATF guidelines and so forth, you would say this is a perfect solution. You can't counterfeit uh, cryptocurrency. It, it has a robust digital identity infrastructure that's uh, highly auditable, immutable, etc. There's every argument you could think of for saying that's the way we should design currency. So the fact that we got pushback against that means that it actually is not about that, that the U.S.'s uh, pushback is all about control. Um, but ultimately, it's a battle they can't win because ultimately, you know, commerce is becoming global um, and value stores are becoming global and cross-borderless. So I think where this really changes is when you have a jurisdiction, maybe it'll be Singapore, maybe it'll be the ECB, maybe it'll be China, where they well, come out. Well, Massimo says exactly that. Right. Uh, he is yes. saying Europe could lead the regulation for digital identity and financial inclusion. But One it's more than digital identity, David. Imagine this. Imagine MAS comes out and says, all right, look, we, you know, we're launching a new type of challenger bank or charter, charter license. And you can, and we're launching this along with new digital identity infrastructure. You, if, if you can establish that you've done the KYC on a customer digitally and you know who they are, then you can let any customer from anywhere in the world open a bank account in Singapore, mm -hmm. um, which is, we're not that far away from that. At that point, essentially, 
Singapore as a regulatory environment is starting to compete with every other regulator in the world because they're saying, you're a bank, you open in Singapore, you can have a customer from anywhere in the world have a deposit here. And at that point, either the US makes the entire Singaporean monetary system, um, uh, you know, illegal, um, you know, or they say, all right, we're going to have to compete on that same basis. And so you get these regulatory zones starting to compete. And I believe that taxation will similarly follow. I think taxation will end up being real time and you'll, you'll put your business in the most uh, competitive taxation environment, but it won't matter whether you live there physically or not. Uh, so let, let, let's go back to that. But uh, to respond to, to Massimo's uh, remark, uh, I was very positively impressed by the ability of the EU to impose interoperability on a technology basis between Correct. banks to the point where now more and more, and it is required by law, banks uh, allow a single user interface to consolidate uh, the information around many of your bank accounts if you want to do that. And, and whether that is important or revolutionary in terms of user interfaces is, is, is one question, uh, you know, rather than opening an app after another app from a single app you can see uh, a consolidated picture of your bank accounts very nice but but the, uh, the substance is what matters the the banks are required to uh, interoperate and not only in a batch function you know with their hulky mainframes uh, right. uh, but uh, like it's in real time yeah. but in in real time so back to what you just said um, what this means is that the financial uh, the, the, the pressure on evolving financial uh, offerings is moving the competition into regulatory technology. So RegTech is now the playing field where comparative service arbitrage is going to be played out. Yes. And, and, and then the next point is how uh, so-called startup societies uh, are, are going to be able to, um, uh, to prove themselves to be, uh, to be worthy. And, uh, and uh, there is actually now a, a foundation for startup societies that are uh, incentivizing, and there is a fund uh, created by uh, Patry Friedman, um, that are that are incentivizing the creation of special economic zones uh, where certain regulatory frameworks can be implemented in order to accelerate uh, the experimentation and the birth of competitive regulatory uh, environments that you know, just like Shenzhen twenty years ago or forty years ago can really create a lot of wealth uh, around the world. Yeah, Shenzhen's an amazing city. Certainly, I would say uh, um, the most innovative city in the world right now. Um, I was there. I was fortunate to be there in January before all the shutdown stuff happened. Um, but I've been to Shenzhen, uh, you know, probably you know, 50 times over the years. And uh, it's an incredible, an incredible place. If, if any of your, uh, you know, viewers have, have not been there after this all settles down, definitely encourage them to check it out.
Uh, so fintech, uh, rectech, startup societies, um, how do you see um, individuals balancing their lives with respect of nation states in the next uh, 10 years? Because there are societies where this balance uh, is definitely trending towards the group and individuals are are, are un, uncontroversially happy to hand over control over their choices to the group. Uh, in, in other places, uh, individuals are, are, are proud to make their own mistakes uh, uh, and and uh, they definitely don't want the group uh, to to control what choices they can make, mm. and, and and the uh, two examples quite obviously are China and and the United States respectively. Yeah. So so how do you think uh, technology is going to um, change this this power? Uh, and 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 is is. Uh, it, it, it looked like uh, capitalism was the the winning solution uh, 20 years ago, but today it looks like it, it isn't. So uh, like yourself, I'm a techno-optimist, right? I believe that technology can solve some of the most intractable problems we have. Certainly, I think technology, um, you know, automation of supply chain and new technologies in farming, for example, can ensure the entire world is fed. Um, I believe that homelessness can be eliminated by, you know, reducing the cost of, of building a home or a, a living space. Um, you know, health tech, I believe that we will live longer and healthier lives as a result of technology. So that's the optimistic side of me. But from a capitalist perspective, um, the markets have not been incentivized to create those solutions unless someone is paying for them. And so if you look at um, climate change as an example, one of the problems we have is the market was quite happy to reward the stocks of these massive fossil fuel companies who were um, obfuscating the truth around climate change and making profit as long as they made their quarterly uh, quarterly returns, right? Instead of the larger social question of should we be polluting the planet? Should we be raising the temperature of the planet to, uh, um, you know, have problems with the climate later? Uh, because that wasn't, you know, that those social can those social concerns are not embedded in 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 um, market capitalism, right? And so, um, yeah, th that's the flaw of economics. The flaw of economics is it treats you to want to be an individual and to fight against uh, you know survival of the fittest as as, uh, as it's been been argued however the the best outcome for the species is clearly that we work together um you know if you take sort of aristotelian view of this you know what is the purpose of humanity the purpose of humanity is to thrive and and to uh, as a species to become successful and we can only do that when we have sort of common objectives that we work towards if if you look at the periods of history when mankind have been most successful, where we've made the biggest technological leaps, it's been when we have large groups of people incentivized to work together. So, you know, the, the world wars are examples of that. Uh, um, but, you know, so is the US space race as an example, where, you know, 4% of the US budget was, uh, um, you know, uh, dedicated to this goal of putting a man on the moon in a decade, and, and we did it. We couldn't have made 
we couldn't make that sort of real technological leaps without a sort of a collective view. So I think that's what's going to change out of coronavirus. And if it doesn't, if it's not coronavirus that makes that change, it'll be, um, you know, AI displacing jobs. Um, you know, it'll be, um, you know, sea rise from climate change, you know, um, food distress uh, from climate change and so forth. We have the technology to do this. We don't have the will right now because of this obfuscation around this, you know, the, the in, you know, you as individual and your rights versus the rights of society. So that's why I think that emerging out of this chaos is a world where both from a technology perspective and an organization organizing principles perspective we become more of a, a species we become more collectively oriented in in producing these goals because the more we remain divided the less functional we are as a species and and uh, in yes we share this uh, optimism in the sense that technology enables that to happen however technology is not a guarantee and uh, in the past in the past we have proven to be stupid enough yes. to make choices that are dramatically wrong and and so what we need is to maximize uh, those outcomes that 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 share opportunities for the largest number of people uh, what i what i often say is that um during the french revolution and in the past the blunt instrument of wars and revolutions were the only ones available to um uh, resolve the mounting social tension uh, uh represented by the difference between what was possible what was becoming possible thanks to technology and what the existing social organization enabled people to enjoy well when when the the the, the french monarchy was decapitated little, literally that was a very very bad outcome for them so uh who you know whatever is your favorite conspiracy theory of whoever is running the world please tell them not to worry because if only we release the tension by enabling uh, uh, new experiments to be carried out and then embrace the best ones regardless of where they are discovered it means that you don't need to be decapitated mm. and i think that should be your goal rather than um, you know uh, embracing your your crown jewels uh, uh, until the guillotines uh, show up and um, so, so i'll tell you about how i do it how i, I frame this in techno socialism um uh, there's you know in terms of sort of the organizing principles i look at sort of two broad um uh, four broad potential futures that we have and so when you're looking at the potential futures, um, you know, you, you can get, um, you, you can sort of take a dystopian or utopian view where we get this, this sort of stuff sorted out. But the other angle is to look at inclusiveness and exclusiveness, because that's really what we talk about. When you talk about an individual over the whole, you know, we're really talking about uh, a problem of exclusionary uh, policy, right? So, and when we talk about financial inclusion and all of that, it's all part of it. So I came up with four possible futures. And these are based on a sort of a magic quadrant sort of style. Um, 
with exclusionary and inclusionary and utopian and dystopian based on sort of technology uh, adoption. And the, the four future states that are possible are the Ladistans. So this is uh, capitalism has largely failed, but no new distinctive system has emerged. AI science and technology is largely being rejected. Um, limits on technologies placed into law to keep humans employed and relevant. So that's one possible scenario. You have the failed state of Stan, right, or failed of Stan. We responded too late to climate collapse. We initiated a global depression over decades, hundreds of millions of displaced uh, workers, um, immigration uh, and resource wars uh, happen, and we have general autocratic rule. We have neo-feudalism which is enclaves of rich living in walled cities, massive inequality, but they have access to all this technology that gives them this, uh, uh, you know, gives them longevity and they basically have this technology ownership through wealth capture. The best outcome, however, is techno-socialism. Right, which is highly automated technology-based society with broader quality and prosperity, ubiquitous technology infrastructure for health, education, transportation, food, and housing. So they're the four choices we have based on the trajectory we're going. Which, uh, which would you choose if you were architecting the future? Well, you might say the wealthy elites would choose neo-feudalism. You know, the lessons from history, Will Durant, David Brin talks about this. The fact is through, throughout the vast um, you know, history of humans, it's been dominated by wealthy elites ruling, uh, you know, the 1% ruling the 99%. But if you want an equality-based system, with technology really serving us to benefit us, then you need uh, inclusiveness, which leads to techno-socialism. So they're the most two likely outcomes, I think, of, of uh, these developments, David. And and uh, while you were speaking, I tried to draft a slide. I, I will send you, a, I'll send you an image of that from the book, okay? Because, um, because there's the, a, I don't know if you can see it. There's the- One there's, sec, one sec, stay there. Yeah. Okay. But, but uh, 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 and in terms of the graph, the graphic behind it, because um, because it needs to show that's the uh, organizing principles. Oh, okay, all right, fantastic. So this is a, a sneak peek of your new correct, book. correct. So Emiliano is asking: Is one world currency possible? And and uh, and and my answer is is uh, yes but greatly undesirable. Yeah, look, um, I actually love his question about Mars because let's take a first principles design approach. If you're building an economy on Mars, would it look like the economy of the United States or China? Oh, no way. Absolutely it is really more China-like. Right. Yeah, uh, it's, it's more and, like China. And one of the reasons, of the reasons is, is, is because in order to survive, Collectivism. Uh, you know the uh, the the cowboy style uh, conquest of the West is not possible. The the movie, the Hollywood movie, the first uh, Schwarzenegger version of uh, Total Recall. Yeah, yeah, Total Recall. Yeah. Uh, where there is this uh, kind of uh, French quarter of uh, Wild West uh, locals uh, is is naive and 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 laughable. Yes. Because it supposes the availability of a, a, an ecological support system that is not there on Mars. Correct. Unless we radically um, recycle everything, um, it, we, we, we just can't uh, survive. A better representation 
uh, is in um, Andy Ware's uh, book Artemis about uh, uh, the moon and the moon colonies. Uh, but even a, even a better one is Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, um, The Martian Trilogy, right? Because yeah. he talks about this eco-poetics, right? Sustainable mm -hmm. prosperity as the goal for mm -hmm. Martians. And so th this is where it, um, it, 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 it um, circumvents these national boundaries. We start with these nation colonies, but then as Mars becomes a... Uh, sort of a nation state competing against Earth, trying to get its independence from Earth, what emerges is this new sort of system which tries to accelerate Mars independence and self-sustainability. And so what you get is people basically saying, um, you know, you, you get assets, you have wealth by more energy you put into the system. So if you're a user of resources in the system, you're penalized, you're in debt. Right. The, the way you become wealthy in that system is by putting more back into this self-sustaining uh, society than you take out of it. And, um, you know, really interesting organizing principle, but would lead to um, a much better a sort of collective approach. Um, but maybe it's too socialist. <laughs> uh, well, uh, one of the consequences of uh, the pandemic has been that a lot of dogmatic um, uh, presuppositions uh, have uh, been eliminated from uh, both individual and common thinking and and previously uh, blasphemous uh, statements are now possible you know um, the US is now seriously implementing uh, universal basic income uh, on a on a limited time scale because whether it is a, a twelve hundred dollar check or whatever it is being sent, and 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 it is not universal enough because not everybody gets it, and and we don't know how long it is going to last. But last year, if somebody said that it was, Trump, it would have been unheard of. It would have been Trump would send a check and and proudly sign it yes. with his name, unconditionally to everybody. It was it was yeah. smoking something. Yeah, it was anathema. So, so that means that this is the time to be radically uh, reforming in Correct. the kind of thinking and the kind of leadership in order to take advantage of this shock that all of us are living under, and really say, okay, are you in to try this experiment? And a lot of people will say, yeah, let's do it, and then see what happens. And the more diverse these experiments are the more likely that we will find solutions that otherwise we wouldn't have. But it also means that a single solution is not going to be implemented and adopted by everybody, which means that there is not going to be a, a, a single world currency. I think or, you need to think of it, you, you, the way you need to think of it, Emilio, is it's like language, right? Is that um, in the future it won't matter that we don't all speak the same language because we'll have the technology instantly to translate languages. So it won't matter in the future what currency you have, whether it's a fiat currency or cryptocurrency, your your wallet based with an AI will be able to sort it all out. So, um, you know, the, the actual underlying value of the currency or the value exchange, there may be some arbitrage in that, but ultimately um, your your wallet will sort it all out. Uh, when, when I was living in Hungary under the communist regime, uh, the Hungarian uh, uh, forint, the local currency, was not convertible. Uh, 
And what that means is that you could buy goods and services in Hungary, paying with the local currency. But when you went anywhere else and you showed them your money, they said, what is that? Please, I don't want it. I want to have nothing to do with it. So there was no uh, uh, interoperability unless the, the central authorities agreed that there would be. And now uh, the name is the same, but the Hungarian currency is convertible. Now, in the future, there will be no such a thing as a non-convertible currency uh, because the code running the, the currency is going to be able to talk to some other code and 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 uh, you may not like the outcome because you thought you were wealthier then it it ends up uh, the the other uh, system will recognize your wealth to be corresponding to but uh, it is never going to be the case that you end up with a bunch of banknotes that others won't take well it might be even more fundamental than that we may return to a form of bartering you know i can see for example an uber driver bartering hours on the uber platform you know it was sort of a common driver sharing thing for uh, apartment space living space or um you know for groceries and things like that again you know once you have the right technology in place you're really not restricted in terms of these types of value exchange mechanisms you could create it does certainly um weaken the position of central banks and fiat currencies unless they're highly highly frictionless um, so it'd be interesting to see you know the Chinese uh, um, you know digital uh, currency that they're working on and so forth it'd be interesting to see the sort of changes that happen as that becomes more accepted will that weaken the petrodollar domination especially as you know as fossil fuels become uh, you know a much more minor part of uh, global commodities trade um, you know there are a lot of real questions about how how money develops um, but I do think that uh, it all comes down to you know, what what sort of dominates this in the future is not who's got the best currency, but really what's the best value exchange framework and mechanism. So uh, there are a lot of things that we didn't uh, touch uh, upon uh, today, and and I hope uh, that there's uh, a lot of things we did though. <laughs> you can come back uh, to talk about to, of course. more. Uh, in the meantime, I want to remind our viewers that uh, uh, just as I was uh, uh, browsing and sharing, uh, these links uh, are going to be posted in the uh, uh, show notes uh, on all the platforms. So you will be able to get uh, in depth both about uh, 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 Brett and I want to uh, um, share that uh, Brett not only has uh, many books, but he also has a very popular uh, podcast. The number one fintech radio show and podcast, Breaking Banks. <laughs> very, good, very good. And I, I, I was happy to be a guest a couple of times there too. Um, and, and so you will be able to get uh, the details of everything we, we, we discussed and, and hopefully learn. And very importantly, hopefully act, uh, uh, open uh, an account in one of these uh, new leading banks, uh, uh, open a, uh, a, a Bitcoin wallet, doesn't matter where, get your hands dirty in the world of, uh, uh, of uh, FinTech uh, because um, your knowledge, your actionable knowledge is what is going to represent your wealth in the future.
Awesome. Thanks, David, for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for being with us. So I want to uh, thank our viewers for uh, uh, being uh, with uh, Searching for the Question uh, live uh, today. Uh, if uh, you uh, know uh, Italian, uh, you um, can actually subscribe also to my uh, Italian channel uh, because I have a, a, an Italian show and uh, the easiest is to go to davidorban.com slash YouTube Italiano. Um, and uh, uh, once again, I want to remind you uh, that uh, on patreon.com slash David Orban, uh, you can uh, choose to um, become a supporter, uh, a patron, uh, to uh, make sure that uh, I can keep uh, producing this uh, together with my team and have uh, wonderful guests uh, like uh, today with, uh, with Brad here. So thank you very much and uh, see you uh, in the next episode uh, tomorrow. Let me tell you who we have. Um, no, it's not going to be tomorrow. The next guest is going to be Dimitri Paranyushkin um, talking about uh, topic discovery, AI approaches to understanding uh, what are we talking about and uh, trying to accelerate the way we can absorb uh, information. It will uh, be very, very interesting. So see you at the next episode. Bye-bye.